Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Here we are at the beginning of a new season, season six, if you can believe it. I am so excited about the lineup of composers that we have this season, and I'm introducing a new segment that you'll be introduced to later this show. To start off our season, my first guest is Jako Mantijarvi. Jako is a Finnish composer and is joining me today over Zoom from Finland. A professional freelance translator, he is also an active semi-professional musician involved mostly in choral singing. Consequently, most of his output as a composer consists of choral works, some 100 of which have been published to date. He describes himself as an eclectic traditionalist. From 2000 to 2005, Yako was a composer in residence of the Tapiola Chamber Choir, and he has also taught a course in the history of choral music at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki. His pieces have been commissioned and performed by notable ensembles such as Chanticleer, the King Singers, and the World Symposium on Choral Music. Yako Mantejarvi, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So I'd actually like to start today with your work as a translator. So I, I have interest in studying languages, but have never been accredited as a translator. So how did you decide that translating was something you wanted to do? Um, well, the short answer is I'm bilingual. So it's sort of an obvious choice from from that perspective. Um, I wasn't sure whether to study languages or music when it came time to choose what to study after school. So initially I went for both, uh, which wouldn't even be possible these days. I mean, it, it's technically not possible to enroll in two, two different programs at the same time. But I did study English at the University of Helsinki and music theory at the Sibelius Academy in parallel for quite a few, wow. few years. For quite a few years. And I, I did graduate with a master's degree in English and linguistics but I never graduated from the Spellis Academy, which is a story in itself. <laughs> but anyway, um, during my English studies, I uh, got an, what you might call an internship. Well, not an internship, a part-time job at a translation company. Mm -hmm. So as an in-house translator doing various things. And I basically didn't leave until 22 <laughs> years later. So that became a full-time job. And, uh, and when I eventually did leave, in 2008, I, I became a freelance translator, and that's my main job. I still consider myself principally a translator, which is surprising to quite many people in, yeah. in the, in the uh, musical world, but it, it does constitute more than 90% of my working time, well, 100% during the pandemic. Um, and so I consider myself first a translator and second a composer. So do people in your translating sphere, do they, are they surprised that you're also a composer? Not necessarily so much. I think uh, musicians are more surprised to learn that I'm, <laughs> I'm a translator than the other way around. Do you speak other languages as well? Um, I do, but with uh, varying degrees of, of fluency. My Swedish and German are pretty good, thanks to studying those in school. I can get by as a tourist in let's say French and Italian. Okay. And I and I'm familiar with some other languages from my linguistic studies, but not enough to speak or write them. And I certainly am not fluent enough in, in any other languages than Finnish and English to be able <laughs> to use them professionally. Sure. As a as a translator. I do translate into Finnish from languages other than English, like Swedish okay. and German on occasion. But that's in the very small minority of my work. So one of the languages I'm familiar with is Czech, and I saw a Czech piece in your catalog, which is a wonderful Czech phrase that has no vowels. Stick your finger through your through your throat. Was this a commission for a Czech choir, or how did that one come about? No, that was a commission for the Europa Cantat Festival, so a European choral festival, which is in different places 
in Europe every, I want to say every five years, but I'm not sure whether it's, anyway, it's not every year, it's every few years. So they commissioned a piece for a workshop. So for a group of people who would sign up for the festival to do that particular piece. And there was no brief as such as to what the piece was supposed to be. And the the premise of the piece is, it's based on a rather lame joke in that in Finnish, uh, vocal music is uh, the term for, the term vocal music can be understood to mean vowel music as well. So the Finnish word vocali means vowel as well, oh. as, well as well as vocal. So the opposite of that would be consonant music, <laughs> which so music is that, that has only consonants <laughs> in it, which is that and a couple of other Czech phrases phrases right. that I dug up, which are completely artificial, but only contain consonants. That's fantastic. So I'd like to go back to the beginning of your musical journey, since I know very little about growing up in Finland. Uh, what was your family like? Did you have a, a musical family growing up? Yeah, in the sense that that amateur music making was was always present. I mean, as far as I know, there are no professional musicians in my my extended family or anywhere in my relations. But both my father and my my mother, well, my mother to a lesser extent, but she did play the piano in 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 school. But my dad played with various dance bands and that sort of thing in in his student days, and and he he still played old-timey jazz up, up until a few years ago with a, oh, with wow. a group of friends anyway so there was so the music making um atmosphere if you like was there but sure. um i began music like uh many middle-class kids by learning piano at gunpoint in my early teens <laughs> at, at which point i wasn't really all that keen on <laughs> on learning to make music myself but what happened is that we we lived uh, abroad in a in first in the UK then in the US for a number of years off and on, uh, which is why I'm technically bilingual even though both of my parents are Finnish speaking. Um, and I think it was when we in the were in the US for a year when I was in junior high school, that that deprivation from having a piano in the house, sort of rekindled my interest or actually kindled my active interest in music. So I, I started to to uh, learn the piano with a bit more dedication after we came back, and composing came along sometime in in upper secondary school, or that would be high school in in U.S. terms. Mm-hmm. And but the stuff I wrote then was sort of copied from classical and romantic models, and and all of that is long gone. Uh, I didn't really start seriously writing choral music until I came to Helsinki to study and joined a student choir okay. as a result of hearing them at an opportune moment in my second year of studies. Well, excellent. So speaking of being a teenager, what sort of music were you listening to as a teenager? Um, classical in the sense of classical and romantic, although my, my musical tastes did evolve during high school. So I started to branch out in, in both directions chronologically, so towards Renaissance on the one hand and towards uh, contemporary on the other. So by the time I was uh, reaching the end of high school, I, I had a fairly wide palette in stylistic terms. I hadn't listened to a whole lot of stuff from each of these styles, but but I, but I had a sense of, of uh, styles and periods and, and what have you. And then there was classic rock and whatever was current at the time in, in popular music. And I, I did, did, I did listen to that. Still do listen to that sort of thing. To this did day. you have a, a favorite band or anything that you were listening to at classic rock? Uh, there, well, there were a couple of Finnish bands, which nobody, none of your listeners would recognize. <laughs> so. so That's great. So when did you actually start writing music? Was that? Well, that's, well, as I said, I did start writing music in high school. But in high school, okay. Again, again, as I said, that wasn't terribly original. That was instrumental stuff, okay. some so- solo songs, that sort of thing. Uh, I wouldn't consider those serious efforts from, even from the perspective of myself at age 25, let alone now. So the really serious attempts at composing 
and began, as I said, when I came to Helsinki to study and joined this choir for which I wrote my first pieces. Okay. And um, the uh, the very first piece I wrote for them was still in a in a fairly unoriginal romantic part song style, but it has been published, and I can sort of stand by it even even today. The second piece that I wrote for them was for Shakespeare songs. In oh, that was an early piece then. Yep. 1985 yeah. i was i was 24 at the time and it's uh, both gratifying and a bit worrying that it is to date my best selling and <laughs> most, most frequently performed piece so on the one hand i did something right on the other hand have i done anything right since then <laughs> i think you did wonderfully with them i've i've performed one of them myself so as i mentioned in your bio you describe yourself as an eclectic traditionalist what do you mean by this? What does that phrase mean to you? Uh, that's a flippant coinage by the circa thirty years thirty years old myself in um, trying to describe what I what I was doing. In that I I take influences from all over the place. I uh, grab whatever I happen to hear and and see whether I could derive something from that. Not copying as such. I I do use quotes but sometimes in a very veiled fashion or modified fashion, um, sometimes identifiable, sometimes not. But uh, whatever happens to grab my fancy uh, musically tends to work its way into my music somehow, the, the music that I write, whether it be folk music, uh, music from another culture entirely, um, or progressive rock, or... Um, pretty much anything it uh, and i can never tell in advance whether something will be of of the sort of interest that will uh percolate into my own writing sure so eclectic is supposed to reflect that a traditionalist is sort of a it was sort of me nailing my colors to the mast because because in the 1980s in in finland as indeed in other places there was a, a wave of modernism and um in Finland, what happened was that a group of uh, young composer, composing students and, and conducting students formed a, an association called the, the Ears Open Society. And uh, a couple of names uh, of the membership may, may even be familiar to your listeners, whether it were people like Magnus Lindberg and Kaija Saariaho and Esa-Pekka Salonen, who, who are still big names in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in Finnish music internationally today. Um, what they advocated for was more contemporary music on concert programs and that was fine because there was not very much contemporary music being performed by established ensembles at the time right. so they did have a point but the uh results of the of this when it escalated to a certain point was that the the zeitgeist if you like uh, became such that if you were trying to be a young composer at the time, there was this one specific style of post-serialist modernism that you had to write in, or else you were not a proper composer. I mean, nobody ever verbalized it like this. Right. But that, that was certainly a feeling for, for those of us who, who were sort of slightly less uh, modernistically inclined, if you like. Sure. I mean, obviously, there were older composers writing in more traditional styles, but they tended to be sneered at by, the, by these angry young men and women at the time so i was very much not in the not in that mainstream so I, I was not at the cutting edge while studying music theory and wanting to study composition as well at the Sibelius academy so calling myself an eclectic traditionalist was sort of a, a reaction to that okay in the sense that i wanted something that sounded um suitably impressive <laughs> but also described exactly what i was doing this is not to say that I don't use modernist means when I when I feel that they're appropriate. I mean, I've I've written some stuff which sounds, to some ears, very modern indeed. Sure. So if you could go back now, with the experience that you have, and talk to yourself as you were beginning composition, as you were beginning choral works, what advice would you give yourself? Um. Maybe I would tell myself to be to be more assertive, although I, I'm not sure that would actually work because I'm, as I've I've said to people a 
many times in the past and continue to do so. I'm rubbish at promoting myself. I'm, I'm <laughs> really terrible at putting myself forward. So the idea of um, attempting to actively promote my own stuff at a time in the mid 80s, late 80s, when when that sort of stuff wasn't really all that appreciated in, um, shall we say, academic or mm-hmm. or um, contemporary music circles, I don't know whether I would have would have had the uh, stamina to do that, even if I'd been advised by my future self that, <laughs> that it would actually actually be worth it. Yeah, well, only a time machine would be able to tell us. <laughs> so yeah, when you're exactly. when you're not translating or composing. What do you like to do? What sort of hobbies do you have? I'm I'd be hard pressed to to name any dedicated hobbies these days, honestly, because um, listening to listening to music is is something that I I do, not very systematically. Uh, I mean, I'm terrible at going to concerts, but I I like to go to festivals and conferences and that sort of thing because then you're in an environment that has a lot of stuff going on at once. And I then I get get to go to listen to things I'd never go to listen to, actively on my own otherwise. So, so maybe listening to music is is also a hobby as well as oh, there you go. as well as well as part of my profession. So, um, what else could I name? Uh, I do sing in a choir myself. Even even today, I I found that I do have to have a choir in which I just sing and do nothing else. And there is a chamber choir in Helsinki, which which I, I'm a member of, which meets every weekend. is a is a fairly high high level chamber choir, one of I'd say in the top twenty in in Finland. Let's put it that way. Wow. And and I made it clear when I joined them that I'm not doing any administrative duties, not any artistic duties. I'm just here to sing. And that's, that's nice. That's worked out. That's worked out okay. I need to get I, a choir I, like that. <laughs> And uh, I also conduct a group of my own, which I set up seven years ago okay. from a group of, a group of friends who have been singing together for decades in, in various formations. And um, and that's that's been going pretty nicely. There's 20 of us, and it sort of works like a vocal ensemble. So, so I sing and only conduct the bare minimum. Very nice. All right. Well, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask you, Yako, to play a quick game. Uh, this week we're calling "Give Me Some Mo," some Mozart. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. You're a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. Okay. Uh, so number one, true or false? Mozart had four children. False. That is false. He actually had six children with Costanza Mozart, uh, though only two survived past infancy. Uh, true or false? Food and drink companies around the world claim that playing Mozart causes their products to grow, ripen, and brew better. True. True. I think that might be an extension of the so-called Mozart effect, uh, but we'd have to try it out for ourselves to to know for sure. Mm-hmm. Number three, true or false, Mozart despised the trumpet. Tricky. I'd say false. It's actually true. His father, Leopold, recounted that Wolfgang would turn pale and begin to collapse at the mere sound of it, which is... I remember, he, funny. Hated the, remember he hated the alto voice, but I didn't remember the trumpet. <laughs> True or false, he was a Freemason. True. That is true. It was actually a very important part of his life. Uh, Masonic themes and ideas are found in many of his works, including to Tabaflute, the magic flute. And last, number five, true or false, he was much taller than most of his contemporary composers. False. That is false. He was actually pretty short. He didn't stand higher than five foot four or one point six meters. So pretty pretty small guy. All right. Well, mm-hmm. after we take a quick break, we're gonna listen to some of Yako's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Yako Matayarvi. So today we're gonna first talk about your piece Come Away Death from your set of four Shakespeare songs that we talked about earlier. So tell us about writing this set and about this piece, Come Away Death, in particular. For Shakespeare Songs was, as I mentioned, the second piece that I wrote for the student choir that I joined 
in in the uh, mid 80s when I was studying at the University University of Helsinki. And because I was studying, uh, I was attending lecture courses courses on Shakespeare at, at that time. And then it was sort of obvious that some set pieces from Shakespeare made their way onto my desk in in terms of writing music as well. So sure. it's um, it's a bold move from from a composer from a non English speaking country to yeah. write a write a setting of something like Full Fathom Five or Come Away Death, which which is what I did in in this set, but. But hey, youthful arrogance—you don't know any better, so so why not go for it? So, uh, Full Fathom Five, which is number four in the set, was actually the first one that I wrote. Okay, and and uh, tried out with this with this group, and it was pretty well received. So I so I wrote further ones as well. Come Away Death was the second one to be written, if I remember correctly. I think it was that rather than Lullaby. Anyway, Come Away Death is number one in the set. And it's how should I say it's an it's an essay in in harmonies that are linked by the interval of a third. Okay. So it starts off in F minor, and we immediately go to G sharp minor, and then sort of go around the scale around the scale from there. And <clears throat> but it has a very, um, I'd like to say tonal feel or quasi tonal feel to it because it's it's very firmly rooted in F. Right and ends up on the dominant C at at key points, then returns to F and so on, and and it never, never strays very far from there, in sort of look and feel terms. Even though if you analyze the harmony, it's all over the place in in terms of because it is has these harmonies related by a third, so F G sharp B natural. It's it's a sort of a madrigal in the sense that it does contain some madrigalisms like extended repetition of the word weep towards the end, for instance, and, and this sort of thing. And it also has I I won't spoil it, but the the end of the piece is stolen from a rather more famous piece, again because of youthful arrogance. <laughs> those people who those people who have done that piece may recognize it, but I won't spoil it just now. Okay, well, we'll have to listen to it. And if I remember correct, doyle, uh, Double Double Toil and Trouble is the other set in this piece, right? Is number right. three yeah. in this set, yeah. yeah. Lullaby yeah. is number two, Double Double Toil and Trouble is number three. Yeah, I conducted Double Double Toil and Trouble for one of my doctoral recitals and absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're now going to listen to Come Away Death, performed by AIDS Ensemble with Matthew Romano as conductor.
All right, our next piece is Warum Toben die Heiden from Stuttgarten Salmen. So this is an example of a more up-tempo piece than those that some people think of when they think of your music. I understand that this is one of a set of three psalm settings that pair with Mendelssohn's Dry Salmon, Opus 78. Uh, could you tell us about the commission for this piece and what you were asked to do? Yeah, so this commission came from the International Bach Academy in Stuttgart in Germany, hence the, the title of the piece, Stuttgart der Psalmen. And the brief was they commissioned several composers for the anniversary of the birth of, uh, of Felix Mendelssohn in, in 2009. So Mendelssohn was born in 1809. For 2009 to write uh, psalm settings using the same groupings that Mendelssohn used in mm -hmm. his published opuses of psalm settings. So there was he published several sets uh, or several opuses containing uh, more than one psalm setting. So the one that was given to me was Mendelssohn's opus, opus 78, which contains three psalm settings. And the only uh, requirement was that I had to use exactly the text that Mendelssohn used. I was allowed to add to that. I could add other texts if I wanted to reflect off them or whatever, sure. but I couldn't couldn't reduce the text that Mendelssohn had used. So I had okay. to use the entire psalm text that he had. And there was I, I took this to mean that I had to include the uh, the doxology as well. So glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, etc., at the end of each one. And I'm not sure whether that would have been a requirement, but that's sort of beside the point. Anyway, so what I did was I didn't go to the Mendelssohn itself. I had heard at least one of the one of the uh, three Mendelssohn pieces in his Opus seventy eight by that time, but I didn't want to go back to them because I didn't want to emulate Mendelssohn. So instead, I went further back to sources that were an inspiration to Mendelssohn, mm. uh, sources like Handel and Schütz. And the the older sort of music that Mendelssohn was instrumental in bringing uh, back to light, so to speak, in in right. his lifetime. I mean, he organized the first performance in in God knows how many years of of Bach's Saint Matthew Passion, for instance. Right. And um and as a nod to that, I include the uh, um Jesus is lying, Eli Eli Lama Zabtani from Bach's Saint Matthew Passion in the uh -huh. Psalm setting. In the in the relevant psalm setting in in this uh, Stuttgart Psalmen as as well, but um, so Stuttgart sorry Stuttgart Psalmen as a whole and Warum Toben die Heiden in particular uh, is quite a lot edgier than I think people might than the image that people might have of my music in general because um, I tend to go for admittedly sonorous consonant sort of uh, textures i mean not tonal as such but but um, very much consonants driven in in their harmonic language but with stuttgart psalmen because the the psalm texts are 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 quite edgy they're they're troubled they're anguished so it seemed to require something uh, something a bit more than that and i got just slightly carried away by the fact that they were going to be premiered by the Uppsala Academic Chamber Choir under Stefan Parkman, who is a wonderful conductor. And knowing that Stefan was going to do this, I maybe pushed the envelope just a bit <laughs> too much for that choir. They did a great job with it, but they they apparently had to work really hard to 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 get through some of the harmonies. In Warum Tob and die Heiden, it doesn't really settle down. It's sort of in E. The there's a there's a feeling of a tonal center around in the E natural throughout the piece, but it doesn't really settle down until very much into the piece. So, so the entire opening section, Varum Tovendi Haiden, Why Do the Heathens Rage, is is very unbalanced and very very sort of troubled, and and there's a lot of that harmonic stuff going on later as well. So, it does end up on a on a hopeful note, but but it's it's quite difficult, admittedly to perform and they they have been performed but, but not a whole lot mm -hmm. and uh, and their their impact seems to be that that people who are familiar with other others of my pieces 
beforehand tend to wonder how it's possible that I could have written something like this compared to those. <laughs> but it just sort of happened. It grew out of the text and out of the context. And All right. Well, we are going to listen to Varum Tobin die Haydn, performed here by the Uppsala Academy Chamber Choir with Stefan Parkman, conductor.
Okay, our third piece today, Smoking Can Kill, also called Modern Madrigal Number 3. So this lovely madrigal, complete with a very rhythmic fa-la-la section, uh, is a setting of the warnings written on cigarette packaging in the EU. So why this topic? And even better, why these words? <clears throat> this is one of the few cases where I can where I can point to an exact moment when I decided to write this piece. I was on my way to the World Symposium on Choral Music in Copenhagen in 2008. Uh, and since it was so close to home, I decided to, to travel by surface rather than by air. So I okay. took the ferry from Helsinki to Stockholm and then the train to Copenhagen from there. On the ferry, in the tax-free shop, as you have on these ferries between Finland and Sweden, um, I was doing shopping for other stuff when 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 I happen to glance at these in tax free shops, you get these enormous cartons of cigarettes, right. you know, not just I've individual those, packs, yeah. but these great big cartons. And and uh, since they're so big, the warning labels on them are also big. And you have these huge texts lining the, that corner of the shop saying smoking can kill, smoking can do this and that and can harm your fetus and causes causes slow and painful death and all the rest of it. And I thought, hmm, wouldn't it be great to write a piece featuring these texts and specifically thinking of pairing it with actual 16th century madrigals extolling the virtues of smoking? Uh huh. So in a sort of contrasting public service announcement sort of thing. I right. mean, there are, there, are, there are actual 16th century madrigals with titles like, oh, metaphysical tobacco or... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come, Sarah Jacko, bring some tobacco. And all of which based around the fact that back then, some actually saw smoking as beneficial to health. Right. It was a new thing. Nobody really knew what to do with it, except that it felt great. And it wasn't until much, much later that, that somebody began to wonder whether it isn't all that healthy after all. So the texts of uh, Smoking Can Kill are actual warnings uh, specified in EU legislation to be placed on cigarette packages, that and that's fantastic. all it. Is. And that's all it is, complete with the uh, falala refrains. Was this written with a particular ensemble in mind? Was someone commissioning this, or yes, this this did end up. I mean, I had the idea before a, a commission emerged to okay. uh, to to fit it. That does happen sometimes that I have an idea for a piece, and then only later a commission comes in that that happens to fit the idea. Yeah, so this ended up being a commission for a group called Coros Amici in in the UK, uh, which is a group I'd come across in in they were in a choral competition in in Helsinki, a competition that no longer exists, sadly, the Harald Andersen choral competition. Mm. Uh, they did quite well, but the the remarkable thing about this group is that. Not only is it an amateur choir, it's a, it's very much an amateur choir in the sense that there are no trained singers whatsoever, and um, but they do a fantastic job. If you if you consider what the sum of their parts is, it's vastly greater than their individual voices. If you see what I mean, whenever there's a solo within the group, you realize that okay, these aren't trained singers, <laughs> but when they sing together, the sound is amazingly coherent and and effective. So and, and they have great fun. I don't know if they're still active, but this was more than 20 years ago. Okay. But anyway, so this is the group that it ended up being a commission for. And it's been performed quite a few times since then. Uh, it's not without its pitfalls because it has some rhythmic quirks that <laughs> that require a fair amount of work. Sure. But but um, but if, if you manage to pull it off, it's good fun. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Smoking Can Kill, performed here by... Cor Cantiamo with Eric Johnson conducting. Smoking, causing arteries and causes heart attacks and strokes. Smoking, smoking, 
Last piece today, Canticum Calamitatis Maritime. I, I am very actually glad that you included this one on our list today. Uh, I had the awesome chance to perform this one while working my doctorate at the University of Washington, and I got to sing the the solo. It's a beautiful piece with a tragic story. I don't want to give too much away, so I'll ask you to tell us what this piece is about and why you decided to set this text. So, Canticum Calamitatis Maritime which translates basically a song of the shipwreck, um, is a memorial to the sinking of the ferry Estonia in the Baltic Sea in 1994. So this was another one of those ferries that, that traveled between Finland, Sweden, Estonia, Latvia, across the Baltic Sea. So it, it, it was a car ferry, like all of these are. So it's basically a metal tube, which is open at both ends with a, <laughs> with a gate, um, stealing it off so what happened was that this was in a violent autumn storm it was september and this particular ship had a design flaw that meant that if its bow door failed then the inner bow door failed as well mm. and in this storm it just so happened that the that the bow door failed which means that the car deck filled up pretty quickly with water and the ship capsized and sank and this was at 2 a.m so there weren't too many people awake at that time. So out of the uh, thousands, how many people? I think about just about 1,000 people were on board and 800-something died. Wow. I forget the exact figure just now, but but only 100-odd, 140, whatever it was, was, were saved. I'm really terrible with figures. I should have done my homework on this before, before talking about this uh, on air, so to speak. Um, 
so I don't have a personal connection to this event because I didn't know anyone on to, on the ship, and I don't even know anyone who knew anyone on the ship. Most of those who drowned were were Estonians, followed by Swedes. There were a few Finns as well. Um, but in 1997, so three years after this event, um, I was trying to write a piece for a composition competition uh, for cathedral choirs. So, uh, uh, so what I was looking to write was a fairly substantial piece uh, in terms of both length and scope, because thinking of a big choir and so on. So I had this idea of writing a memorial to the for the Estonia disaster, and I wrote a setting of, of the psalm that begins, uh, they that go down to the sea in ships, uh, in Latin, qui descendunt mare in navibus. And I sketched out music for that. And once I'd done that, I realized I have about seven minutes of music, and the competition brief was 10 minutes minimum. Mm-hmm. So I had to add something to this. So what else could I add to this? So then it was actually my wife who suggested that that I use the news in Latin. Footnote, Finnish public radio used to have a weekly five-minute news summary in Latin for Mm. more than 30 years. It's been discontinued now, but it's it it went on for quite some time, and they had to invent a whole mess of new words, as you can imagine. Sure. For for things that appear in in news, news items. So I took the texts from the news broadcasts from the actual week when the Estonia sank, and I set them to a a sort of chanted um, narration-type structure to go at the beginning of the piece. So, and then added to that, I wrote what could be described as a folk song, sort of soprano solo, um, which isn't an actual folk song, it just sounds like it. So... When the piece begins, you get this uh, vocalized, vocalized soprano solo folk song-ish theme. Then you get a baritone reciting the news in Latin about the disaster itself uh, with interspersed cries of miserere domine, have mercy on me, O Lord. And after we get through all this, uh, we go into the psalm, they that go down to the scene ships. And then we end up after a stormy climax in... Um, in a coda where the soprano solo returns. That's great. So this uh this piece was a slow starter, I have to say. It was it was premiered quite soon after it was completed in, in nineteen ninety seven, but but it didn't really take off until maybe um let's say five, seven years later. It was performed uh, at a memorial service for the tenth anniversary of the sinking in two thousand and four. And it's and since then it's it's been performed quite a, quite a lot well quite a lot for a piece that substantial certainly yeah. in the U.S. it's been it's been performed quite a few times. So the psalm was written first, mm-hmm. then the the idea germinated from there. Yeah, that's that's great. Essentially, okay. Well, we are going to listen to Canticum Calamitatis Maritime, performed here by Campin Laulu. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ensemble. Okay. With Kari Turunen conducting, did I say his name correct as well? Yeah, quick footnote for that: the uh, the uh, audio, uh, sorry, the video from this which this audio is lifted is from the Markt Oberdorf Choral Competition or a concert at that competition, where the Kampinlaula Choir was in in under Kari Turunen. Kari is now the artistic director of the Vancouver Chamber Choir. Oh, okay. Which which might be of interest to yeah. some of your listeners. Not too far away from me. Mm-hmm. All right, and just another side note: Yako uh, is actually singing in this choir as well. Yes, we I'm furthest on the left in the video. <laughs>
All right. Well, Yako, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? I have a policy of never discussing work in progress. I'm sure. sorry to say. Um, but the good news, good news is that I am writing again. I Excellent. spent nearly three years before and during the pandemic not, not writing anything because I just didn't have any motivation to do so. But things are now looking sort of normal-ish again. And um, I'm sort of cautiously coming back. Fantastic. So if my listeners want to learn more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Do you have a, a website or somewhere else? I do have a website, but I wouldn't direct anybody to it because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mess. So seriously, it hasn't been properly updated since 2016, and I, I've been meaning to get around to it for years now. But as I say, I'm, I'm rubbish at doing this sort of thing myself. So I do have a website, which is myname.fi for Finland. But um, the best place to ask if you want um, informed answers as to availability is with my publisher, Sulasol, S-U-L-A-S-O-L dot F-I. So they, they're, my, they're my publishers. They sell all, all of my stuff except for one or two pieces. And okay. They can, they can advise about availability and so on. All right. And I know you've got a, a lot of videos out there on YouTube with different choirs mm-hmm. doing your pieces. So that's another great place for our listeners mm-hmm. to go. Sure. Well, hey, listeners out there, here at the beginning of Season 6, now is a great time to become a subscribing member to Movable Dough. It's easy. For less than a dollar a month, you can join other listeners and support and support the work that I'm doing to bring new music to you each week. You know you want to, but just keep forgetting. So do it now as soon as this episode is done. Visit anchor.fm slash movabledough and click support. Go ahead. Do it while you're thinking about it. Well, Yako, I'd like to thank you for starting off Season 6 with a bang, and thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. My pleasure. My guest today was composer Yako Mantiyarvi. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.